Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. I encourage you to open your Bibles with me to the last book of the New Testament, the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 4, and we'll read all of this chapter in just a moment, Lord willing. Today we're looking at the population of heaven. Now last week we started our four-part series on the subject of heaven in Colossians chapter 3. And that book tells us to set our affections as Christians on heaven right now. We don't have to wait till we die. We don't have to wait till Jesus comes again for our heart to be in heaven. They say home is where the heart is. And according to Colossians 3, our heart should be on heaven right now. Now this morning I want us to focus on the population of heaven as I said. By that I do not mean the answer to the question how many people will go there, though that's an interesting question. Uh, The word population means all the inhabitants of a given region or area. Now the population of regions and areas has always intrigued me ever since my parents purchased for my brother and me a set of world book encyclopedias back in the 70s. Um, That was the internet before there was an internet. I still remember how those heavy books felt in my hand. I remember the smell of the pages. We come in from uh, school every day and uh, we weren't allowed to watch much television so we got out the encyclopedias and I read. And I always particularly enjoyed reading about states and regions because there was always a transparent film over the first page of a certain country and it would give the demographics, it would give uh, the religious information, it would give the products that were produced in that country. And, And I just thought it was amazing because I lived along with my family in very rural areas. We didn't travel very much. Um, and I didn't get on an airplane until I was 23 years old. And so to me, it was magic to read about those places that I wanted to go and dreamed about being there one day. Well, that's exactly the effect I want these verses to have on you today. I want chapter four and five of Revelation to, to help you know more about heaven so that you'll want to be there. So let's read Revelation chapter four. John is writing and he says, after these things I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the spirit and behold a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. And around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. And out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal, and in the center And around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, the second creature like a calf, and the third creature had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, 
Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of this, his word. Now what we have before us in this chapter is the climax of human history. All of creation, indeed all of God's eternal plan comes down to the moments described here in chapters four and five of Revelation. You might remember that the apostle John had been exiled in his old age on the island of Patmos and he received two visions, one after the other. The first vision is described in chapters one through four of Revelation. In that vision, he saw the risen Christ walking in and among the candlestands, which we are told represent the seven churches of Asian Minor. And he says, these are the things that are, that is in the present tense. Those churches existed during the time of John. And he was speaking, I think, of that time from the church age, from the ascension of Jesus into heaven and to the second coming of the Lord Jesus. And now he's transitioning into his second vision, which he says are the things to come. This is a prophetic vision. It's in the future, in the end times. And John receives the greatest privilege I think any human ever has received, and that he is transported supernaturally, he says, in the spirit, into the very presence of God in the throne room of heaven. And what we have here is a transition from things that were to the things that will be. Again, listen to Chapter 4, after these things, that is after the first vision, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. Now I said last Sunday, most of us wish that we knew more about heaven. There's all kind of conjecture about heaven, all kind of anecdotes and stories about heaven. But I hope you didn't hear me saying last week that the Bible is silent about heaven. It certainly is not. In fact, John is not the only person that was given this privilege of seeing into heaven's throne room. There are four men in the Bible who had that privilege. In the Old Testament, we see Ezekiel, who had this vision of the throne room of heaven. We see Daniel, who saw the ancient of days in heaven. Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, saw the Lord high and lifted up in the temple. And even the Apostle Paul describes one who was transported into the third heaven, likely himself. But Paul, unlike the other three, was not given permission to write down what he saw. So we don't know exactly what he saw other than it must have been consistent with what the other three saw. Now we all as Christians, because this world's not our home, want to know as much as we can. If we had an encyclopedia article on heaven, I expect we would read it, but we don't have a whole lot. But this particular portion of Revelation is the clearest picture we have about what heaven is and and what it's like. Now we have to be careful about our curiosity about heaven because you know what happened to the cat, right? with its curiosity. And I think the evangelical church is in danger of being killed over curiosity about heaven. Here's what I mean. Um, You go to any Christian bookstore and you're probably gonna have a whole shelf of books about people who claim to have died momentarily, gone to heaven and to come back. Um, Our friend Justin Peters called this whole subgenre of Christian literature, heavenly tourism, tongue in cheek. 
people who claim to go to heaven and then write books and sell them to others. Now, let me just tell you your, your pastor's opinion about that shelf of books. Most of it is absolutely nonsense. If you want to know about heaven, read your Bible, right? This morning, the door into heaven is open. Let's let the Apostle John be our guide as we look at the population of heaven. Let's talk about that open door. John says he saw an open door and a voice bid him come up here, come to the third heaven. Now we know that when Jesus died on the cross, a couple of things happened. One, day turned to night. And then the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom. That veil that separated the people from the Holy of Holies where God's presence met with the high priest once a year. And I think that was very symbolic of the fact that because the old covenant is over, because Jesus has accomplished everything the Father wanted him to accomplish, we no longer have to go through a system of priests and sacrifices. We have direct access to the Father. The scripture says we're to come with boldness before the throne of God and make our petitions known unto him. So it's not just John that has the privilege of communicating with heaven, but John in a way that none of us have ever was physically, perhaps just spiritually, but he was cognizant of being in the presence of God. Now, what he wrote about heaven tells us a lot. The first thing we notice is the arrangement of the population of heaven. Um, the throne of God is at the epicenter of heaven. Now, God's throne is not just a piece of furniture, is it? It represents all he is, all his power and authority and dominion. We here at this church have six guiding principles. The very first is SDG, which stands for Soli Deo Gloria. That is, everything we do is designed to give glory to God. And do you know why that is? Because everything that God does is designed to give glory to God, including the throne room of heaven. So here's God's throne in the center of heaven, and everyone and everything else arranged in concentric circles around it. So let's walk through five groups we see as part of the population of heaven. Number one, we see God the Father. Verse two, immediately, John says, I was in the spirit and behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on a throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and sardius in appearance. There was a rainbow about the throne like an emerald in appearance. Now, John simply refers here to God the Father as the one, capital O, the one sitting on the throne. Daniel in his vision, called God the Ancient of Days. Isaiah called him the Lord, high and lifted up. But they all mean the same thing. This is God the Father in his sovereignty and his dominion over his creation. It's represented by him sitting on a royal throne. The psalmist had lots to say about God's throne. Psalm 9-7, but the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. Psalm 11:4. the Lord in his holy temple, the Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of men. Psalm 47, 8, God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. Now, this, of course, does not mean that God is somehow confined to heaven. When we study the attributes of God, we always talk about his omnipresence. He's everywhere at once. David said, if I make my bed in hell, God is there. There's nowhere we can go out of his presence. But heaven, in a real sense, is the abode of God, the home of God. You have a place you live and you call home, but you go elsewhere. God cannot be confined. Solomon said this at the dedication of the temple. 
Solomon wanted everyone to know, like, we're building a temple, but we know we can't keep God captive in that temple. So we understand what he means here. And by the way, there is no glibness in the throne room of God. Did you notice that? When he's described, he's described in magnificence and splendor and power and authority with brilliant light and incredible colors and the most precious of stones. This is God's glory that Isaiah said filled the entire temple. What is God's glory? Well, it's something kind of hard to describe in the Bible in both Testaments. When God's glory is on display, it's usually with blinding light. Um, The Hebrews call this the Shekinah of God, his glory. We see this when Paul is on his way to persecute Christians on the road to Damascus and he sees the risen Lord Jesus and he's struck blind by the bright light, the Shekinah glory of Jesus. And he knows he's God and he goes down in the dirt and he grovels. This is what Isaiah did in Isaiah 6. He prostrated himself before the Lord. This is the proper response to being in the presence of God. And really what I try to do every Sunday in in my frail way is to try to open the door of heaven to you, to let you see the supreme glory of God on display. Steve Lawson, who was here a couple weeks ago preaching and teaching to young pastors, said this, quote, the pulpit ministry must relentlessly magnify the supreme glory of God, end quote. So when we come to church on Sunday, we gather together. If you don't get anything else out of the entire service, I hope you get this eternal truth. It's not about us. It's about God, right? His throne is front and center. Heaven, like the church, ought to be a theocentric place, right? God-centered in everything. So we see God the Father sitting on his throne in heaven. But we also see, secondly, God the Spirit represented as fire. Verse 5, out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. So now, what's second, Pastor? We're monotheist here, aren't we? Uh, we are Trinitarian. We don't believe in seven gods. So when he says seven spirits of God, what in the world could he mean? Well, turn back about two pages in your Bible to the first chapter of Revelation, and we'll see John's first vision in verse 4, and we see very clearly what he means by the seven spirits. Revelation 1.4, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace. And he addresses the letter and he gives greetings from these three entities, from him who is and was and is to come. Now, who is that? Who is the only entity in the universe who has always been, who is now and will always be in the future? That's God. So from God the Father, he sends greetings. Secondly, and from the seven spirits who are before the throne, And thirdly, from Jesus Christ. So certainly speaking of the Trinity there, right? God the Father, God the Son, and the seven spirits who are before the throne is the Holy Spirit, the Trinity on display. Now why would he use the number seven? Well, you know in the ancient world, particularly in Hebrew culture, seven was the number of completion, totality. He's speaking there not only of the Spirit, but his function. When Jesus was about to ascend into heaven, he told his disciples that he was going away, but he would send another one, a comforter. 
So one of the works of the Holy Spirit is to comfort God's people. We're away from home. We are not where we long to be, so we need comfort in this life. We need encouragement. Scripture says he is an illuminator. He guides us to all truth. He helps us understand the Bible. He convicts of sin and judgment and righteousness, right? So all of these are part of the multifaceted function, which is summed up with the number seven, which means all the things that the Spirit does. So the Spirit here also is revealed as a blazing fire. Now that should not surprise us. If you know your Bible in the Old Testament, we see God speaking through the burning bush. We see God represented in the wilderness wandering as a pillar of fire. In the New Testament, on the day of Pentecost, we hear a sound of a mighty rushing wind and then the Holy Spirit descending and setting upon those men as if tongues of fire. And so this is clearly the second person of the Trinity represented in heaven as fire, the Holy Spirit. So we've seen God the Father, God the Son in heaven, uh, God the Spirit in heaven, and thirdly, we see God the Son. Now, where do we see God the Son? Well, we have to read on into chapter 5, don't we? Now, remember, the chapters and verse numbers were added years after this letter was written to help us find our place in the Bible. But this is one continuous stream of thought. This is the same vision carried over into chapter 5. So let's read on now in chapter 5. John is speaking. He says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or look into it. And I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the book and break its seals for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God. They will reign upon the earth. So here we have God, the son in heaven. We, we mentioned this last week in closing, this scene in the throne room of heaven. And John is confused because a question goes out through heaven. Who is worthy to take this scroll, which is the title deed of the universe? Who is worthy to run the universe? And there was silence in heaven, which caused John to weep because he knew the implication that if no one in heaven could run the universe, then Satan would continue to because he is described as the God of this age. And then the elder, who was John's tour guide, said, stop weeping, look over there. There is the lion of Judah, the root of David. Now you remember that God made a covenant with King David that one of his descendants would be the eternal king. The Messiah would come from a descendant of David. And there are two genealogies recorded in the four gospels that prove that Jesus fulfilled that requirement. But when John looked at the lion, he didn't see a lion. What did he see? He saw a lamb. 
the Lamb of God, as it were, slain before the foundation of the world. And I think John instantly knew all of those animal sacrifices when he accompanied his parents as a boy to Jerusalem to make it the temple, all pointed to this once-for-all sacrifice. The Lord Jesus, who willingly laid down his life, humble and gentle, just like a lamb, like a lamb to the slaughter, he opened not his mouth. He willingly went and made this sacrifice, this atonement for all who would believe. That is undoubtedly God the Son pictured here in heaven. And that son takes the scroll because he alone is worthy to open it. And then for the rest of the book of Revelation, it's seven seals open one after the other as what God is doing. He's making right everything that was made wrong because of sin's entrance into the world. Remember I said a few weeks ago that we have a linear view of biblical history? That God started when he created, even before that, before the foundation of the world. His eternal plan was to save a people unto himself, unique and distinct, a royal priesthood, a people of God's own possession, and that he would send his son into the world to die for them, and that one day he would come again for them. And then, as Paul says in Philippians 2, one day every knee will bow of things of heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is what's happening in heaven. Human history is coming to an end. Christ is about to gather his church and he is ultimately after the tribulation period going to be recognized eternally as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And God the Father is giving him this title deed to the universe. So we see God the Father in heaven. We see God the Spirit in heaven and now we see God the Son. But they have others there with them. Fourthly, we see angels in heaven. It says in verse 6, and in the center, that is, of the room and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion. The second creature like a calf. The third creature had a face like that of a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. Now, these four living creatures, um, sort of scary when we think of them, full of eyes and wings all about. I, I saw a picture the other day of some artist's rendition of what these four creatures looked like and uh, I turned the page very quickly. Now, now John is in a difficult position here. He's trying to, uh, as my professor said in seminary, scrut the inscrutable. And he's got a limited vocabulary and he's trying his best to tell us what he's seeing but it's something he or no one else has seen like it. And so he uses the, the word like a lot. That is the closest thing I can compare it to is, is this. But what they're doing is clear. They are praising the Lord day and night and saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And so we take these, of course, to be angels. Specifically, classification of angels called cherubim, who minister around God. When God gave the prescription for the temple to be built and the Ark of the Covenant to be built. He instructed that the Ark was to be covered with these two angels with multiple wings. In Isaiah chapter 6, when the Lord saw, when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, he was ministered to by seraphim, cherubim. And remember, with two wings, they, they covered their face. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they did fly. 
And God instructed these angels to take that hot coal and touch it to Isaiah's lips, signifying his forgiveness and his purification. So angels, what are they? They're not figments of our imagination. They are created beings. Like humans are created. Angels are created beings. And some of their names are mentioned in the Bible. Michael and, and Gabriel. Their functions are certainly listed in many places in the Bible. Primarily their function is the one we see here in Revelation 4 and 5. They worship. They praise God. They reflect His glory. They rejoice in what God does. They are instruments of God's judgment throughout the rest of the book of Revelation. When Jesus opens the seals, it's the angels who carry out the judgment. But in our age, they bring answers to, to prayers in Acts chapter 12 and other places. Peter was released from jail after the prayers of God's people by an angel. Angels rolled away the stone at Jesus' resurrection. They encourage us in times of difficulty. The Bible says that beware that some of us have entertained angels unaware. And Luke 16 tells us that they care for the righteous dead at the time of their passing. So angels are real and there will be many, many angels in heaven. But we've got 10 minutes left and we haven't talked about us yet. I hope you want to know about people in heaven, right? Well, you're in luck. Fifth and finally, let's look at the saints in heaven. Verse 4, around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. 24 elders sitting on 24 thrones. Now the identity of these 24 elders is a topic of much debate by theologians. When I say much, I mean a bunch. Uh, when I quit reading on this this week, there were 17 theories on this. But in 10 minutes, I can't give you the 16 ones that are wrong. I'll just give you the right one, all right? Save us all some time. I, I say that with tongue in cheek because, look, these are mysterious things, let, let's admit. But I think it's very clear that these 24 elders represent Christians. Here, here's why I say that. In the Old Testament, when God gave Moses instruction about how he was to be worshipped, he gave a certain class of people called the priest, right? And he divided that priestly class into guess how many orders? 24. And it was the job of the priest, those 24 classes of priests, to represent the people before God day and night. Now, because the veil has been torn and because we're not under the old covenant, we believe in a concept called the priesthood of the believer now. We can go directly to the Lord. But there's a sense where we still intercede for one another in prayer, as the priest did, Adrian Rogers was fond of saying it's not the 45 minutes a week that the pastor is in front of the people telling them about God that's most important, but the hours that he spends in his study on his knees before God telling him about the people that's most important. And so the priests were always interceding before God for the people. That is, they were representing all of the people. And I take these 24 elders to be representing all Christians, all the redeemed for all time. Now, now, some believe this to be 12 Old Testament patriarchs and the 12 apostles. Some take it to be some other group of people. But the point is that these are people. These represent people, not angels, though that's one of the theories as well. 
So I believe in the context that 24 elders are representative of the saved, the saints, in other words. Why, why do I say that? I think for several reasons. Number one, they are described as having crowns. The Bible says that Christians who persevere to the end will receive a Stephanos, which is a victory crown in the Greek culture. You know that they had games like the Olympics in those days and the winners were put on a platform and they had a Stephanos, a victor's crown placed on their head. Paul anticipated that victor's crown, but he said, not only me, but all who love his appearing. Scripture says not only do they wear crowns, these 24 elders sit on thrones. Now last week I said if you ask me what does it mean that we get to share in the glory of Christ in heaven, I would look at my watch and say I'm out of time. Because I really don't know. There's not great specifics in the Bible. But the closest thing we come to having a specific about what it means to share in the glory of Christ is here. Paul says in Ephesians that we're raised with him to be seated in heavenly places. And here's 24 thrones. And Paul said, don't you know that we one day will judge others in heaven? And again, I don't know the specifics of that other than we're going to sit down and we're going to have authority. And so there's 24 thrones. Now, I think the greatest, perhaps, indication that these are humans is their attire. They're dressed with white robes. And I think this clearly speaks of imputed righteousness. A little later on in the book of Revelations, we are introduced to the martyred souls that are under the altar, crying out to Jesus to avenge them. And they say, how long? And he said, not yet. But in the meantime, he gave them white robes to wear. He covered them with his righteousness. And friend, if you're born again here today, that's exactly how you were saved. God, through his spirit, convicted you of personal guilt and sin. You cried out to him. You believed on Christ. And Christ's righteousness was imputed to you through faith. Your sins were forgiven. And though your sins were as scarlet, they became what? White as snow. White as these robes that we see the elders wearing in heaven. And then their name, I think, tells us these are humans. They are called elders. And there are three words in the Greek New Testament that describe the office of leader of the church. One is episkopos, which means overseer or manager. One is poimen, which means shepherd. And then there's this word right here, presbyteros, which means elder. And listen to this. Not one time in the Bible is an angel called a presbyteros. But many times in the Bible, people are called Elders. So you put all those clues together, and I think to me it's very clear that these 24 elders represent all of the redeemed for all time. Well, how many is that? How many people are going to heaven? Well, I don't know exactly. Jesus says uh, the way to hell is wide and broad, and many there go. The way to heaven is entered through through a small gate, and it's a narrow path. And as John Newton said, it's full of dangers, toils, and snares. But there's going to be a lot there. I'm thinking of God's promise to Abraham that through him all the nations of the world would be blessed and that his descendants would be more than the stars in heaven and the sand on the seashore. In fact, we, we find back in chapter 5, I didn't finish reading that. Let, let's read now verses 11 through 14, chapter 5, speaking of how many people are in heaven, how many angels are in heaven. John said, then I looked, that is across heaven, and I heard the voice of many angels. There's a clue. 
around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. So at least the angels, we know there's a bunch. That's a technical word, by the way, a bunch. Um, actually, this Greek word that is translated myriad is the highest numeric value that you could use in the Greek language. What's the highest numeric value we have in our English language? Well, my kids say it's a gazillion. So you can replace myriad with gazillion there, I think, and you'd be close. But in the Greek mind, 10,000 was the largest number they could get their brain around. And so he said there were 10,000 times 10,000s and thousands of thousands. I don't think he's trying to tell us an exact number. I think he's trying to say heaven is filled with angels worshiping God. And what are they doing? So with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Now hear this. And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and the sea and all things in them. This is the fulfillment of Paul's prophecy of Philippians chapter 2. I heard saying to him who sits on the throne, that's God the Father, and to the Lamb, that's God the Son, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders, that's the redeemed of all time, fell down and worshipped him. I said last week, um, we're not going to play 36 holes of golf a day in heaven. We're not going to do all those things we think are wonderful here on earth without fear of consequences. The primary thing we're going to be doing in heaven is worshiping the Lord Jesus. And so you can think of Sunday morning here as choir practice for heaven. And you say, well, I can't sing very well. What am I going to do? Well, you can do what the four elders do. You can say amen to the rest of us. <laughs> but the truth is, you're going to have a good singing voice in heaven. Because every physical and emotional problem here on earth is a result of sin's curse, isn't it? And one of the things that's going to make heaven heaven, <laughs> no more curse. Because no more sin. You see, we are saved, dear friends, from the penalty of sin, which is hell. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're free from the power of sin. We don't have to sin any longer, but we know we still do struggle with sin. As Paul says in Romans chapter 7, the things he wants to do, he doesn't do, and the things he doesn't want to do, he does, but not any longer, because Paul is among the redeemed, and one day we'll be among the redeemed in glory. Well, we're free not only from the penalty of sin and the power of sin, but the very presence of sin. And for that, we will give glory to God for all of eternity. Let's pray and thank him. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We are not left to grope along in the darkness, wondering where you are or where we will be one day. Father, there's even greater detail than this about who goes to heaven what we will do there and next week Lord willing we're going to look at that Lord help us to go home this week and ponder much about what we've heard today about the population of heaven Lord remind us daily that our lives are to be like the throne room of heaven God centered we're to arrange everything else in our life around you not vice versa Father we know Jesus is in heaven we know the Spirit is in heaven. He's among us. 
We thank you for your omnipresence. Father, our loved ones who've gone before are in heaven. And Lord, it's the place where we long to be and will be, those of us that know you very soon. So help us to relinquish this stranglehold many of us have on this life. It's passing away. It's not even our real home. Help us to focus our hearts and mind where Jesus is, seated at your right hand. Help us, Father, to tell as many people as we come in contact with about how to get to heaven. Father, we look forward to that day where we're free of sin, free of all of the accompanying curses of sin. When you wipe away every tear and make all things new, help us to live our life every day in the light of that coming truth. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.